You are listening to Seniors Junction Podcast. We are preventing social isolation of seniors one conversation at a time. Your hosts today, Namrata Bagaria and myself, Paul Merkley, co-founders of Seniors Junction. Our very special guest today is Debbie Howard, founder of The Caregiving Journey and author of a book by the same title. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, Paul. Nice to see you and nice to see you as well, Namrata. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I am a Japan expert. I lived in Japan for over 30 years, and that's where I first became interested in aging societies. And then uh, I, I actually worked in market research in Japan and still work in market research. Uh, a lot of our work these days is around age tech uh, because of Japan's aging population. And um, of course, I was grounded with COVID, uh, so I'm working from Central Texas, but um, nothing can keep me away from Japan, actually, because I've, I've, I have a career there and, and a big interest in Japan. Um, along the way, uh, I became a caregiver. Uh, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer uh, back in 2007. And um, I was at the time running my market research consultancy in Tokyo, and I was able to manage that with my two younger sisters as a caregiver from afar for the first year. But for the last six months of her life, she really, really needed somebody there to help her. And um, we realized that both of my sisters, one who worked for government and one who worked for um, for uh, a healthcare system of all things, both of their uh, family medical leave was expired after one year with three strapping daughters spotting each other on the care. And, and this shocked me quite a bit actually. And I, because I was an entrepreneur and owned my own research company, I was actually the only one able to go home and live full time with my mom for the last six months of her life. So that's what I did. And I literally went back to South Carolina in the United States and, um, and ran my Tokyo based market research consultancy off the dining table where we had eaten dinner when I was back in the elementary school. So um, I was deeply, deeply affected by that experience because um, as a market researcher and a marketing person, I was um, ill-equipped to be a caregiver. And uh, fortunately, my mother uh, didn't need that much heavy duty nursing, but she did need oxygen and we had to do a lot of uh, medication titration. And of course I had to manage the care team of which I was the main one, the 24 seven caregiver. And it was just a, it was a, a pretty traumatic experience all around. And um, I think maybe the maybe the biggest impact on me was the emotional impact. Because I think that, you know, you, you, you might be able to skate through a little bit on some of the other, the, some of the caregiving things, let's say, if, you're, if your care receiver is like my mom, she didn't, she was very independent and she actually was quite in quite good shape until the very, very end. But, um, but the emotional turmoil is something that, um, I, I just 
was really, really struck by because I thought, I thought that I kind of had my stuff together. You know, I was an entrepreneur. I'm a big fancy businesswoman, and you know, I'm calling on corporations, and nobody could do much to me. You know, to make me upset, but that caregiving experience really upset me. I can tell you that. And, um, and I, I was really upset and touched by what I did not have in my toolkit um, as, a, as a human being. And so uh, I came out of that experience having lost my mom at the end of 2008, right before global financial uh, turmoil. <laughs> we called it Lehman shock in uh, Japan. But the whole world was just falling apart at that point. And of course, I went into my, um, my trying to go back and save my business um, in a very weakened position, not only psychologically and emotionally, but, um, but, but financially, because the business just dried up. So I, I always like to laugh and say, now everything's a little bit amusing if you can keep your sense of humor uh, in your life. But, you know, I like to say that I have seen the burning tips of my airplane as it was going down. <laughs> I have seen that. And I've seen it a couple of times because I saw it then in 2008 when I almost lost my business. And then I saw it again uh, in 2011 when we had the triple earthquake disaster in Japan. So I, I came mom still grieving, not complete still not complete 13 years later. And um, thank goodness I had to save my business, right? Because it, it kept me, it kept me moving and it kept me focused on something that really was uh, pretty important to do. And I just didn't have time to, to do anything else. So I rebuilt the business. Then we had the triple disaster earthquake. And um, somehow I'm here today to tell you the story. And I, I, that's what my book is about. My first book, uh, The Caregiving Journey, Information, Guidance, and Inspiration, is about that experience. And I tried to take what I learned and put it in a form that could help other caregivers to maybe view their caregiving experience as a transformative experience. So rather than looking at it as something terrible to go through, why don't we be more proactive? And why don't we try to pull, um, pull the good parts of that experience to make ourselves a better person? That's what my first book is about. And I, I kind of went a little bit long on telling you about myself, but it's, it's the foundation of why I do what I do now. And the second book I'm writing is for companies to help them to help their caregiving employees because I myself went through that as a, a person at the peak of my career, getting kind of knocked out by caregiving, uh, if you will. But uh, I, I think that there are just so many things that we can all do to be proactive about this caregiving experience that most of us will have sooner or later. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, your story because I think on our podcast, we've interviewed different kinds of people. And I think it's the first podcast we're having with caregivers perspective, and especially with isolation and caregiving because it's something we haven't touched in our podcast yet. 
So from my uh, side, the question is, you must have encountered senior isolation and also isolation in caregivers. So from your perspective, what are the pain points? Well, when we think about aging populations, I think, I think that there's a lot that happens with culture and the cultural views on aging and death and dying. For example, we know that, and, and I've seen this, um, for example, Asian cultures are much more respectful of their elders, if you will. I don't like using the word elders, but uh, Asian cultures, Hispanic cultures are much more um, respectful of their elders. And there's much more of a tradition to take care of your aging elders or your aging parents and loved ones as a matter of course. It's, it's something that is just naturally built into the culture. In America, we tend to, at some point in the 50s, it probably started out the same way where families were all living together. But then at some point in the 50s, we started outsourcing our elder care. And we have a very high penetration of assisted living in nursing homes in America. In Japan, you do not have that. You have many, many more people being taken care of at home and aging independently until they move in with their children. But the tradition, for example, in Japan is for the eldest son to inherit everything from the parents. The other kids don't get anything. And the reason the elder son gets everything is because they literally tear down the parents' original home and build a new home for the elder son and his family and the parents. And then everybody lives together in a multi-generational household. And that's still probably about maybe, I'm gonna say seven or 8% of the households in Japan it used to be much higher. So even in Japan, that, that way of multi-generational household living is, is declining. But in the States, we don't have that much at all. Um, we're actually having a return to that in the States because of the economics of the situation. And I think the pandemic has kind of driven that as well. Um, but culture has a lot to do with it. And um, I think if you look at America versus Japan, for example, the aging population in America would be more isolated than those in Japan. So there's just more intergenerational play in Japan. Um, so there's that point of isolation just because you're older. And then there's this isolation because you're not well. And, and that, that, I think there's two, two factors there. There's, there's the thing that happens as you get older, yeah. and then there's the thing that happens as you're, as you're being cared for. And I'm talking pre-pandemic. So when I was caregiving for my mom, um, we, uh, we were pretty isolated. We had our own little bubble. And the reason we did is because she had cancer, lung cancer, and we couldn't afford to be bringing germs into the house. Uh, I, I remember I was so proactive about not getting a cold because I knew my mom getting a cold could kill her. So uh, now we fast forward to COVID times. That's, that's the same, right? We're very, we're very worried about our own immune systems and what we might bring home to our aging loved ones. Um, I, I think 
I think isolation is a, is a really interesting topic because there's so many different kinds of it, but we've all felt it during COVID. That is one thing for sure. 100%. I think uh, that's, that's a common dialogue, right? I think uh, every man is an island now. I think that poem has to be revised, I guess, Paul. I think so. I do think so. So um, you've already spoken a little bit about, well, a fair bit about your vision, but could I ask if there's anything you'd like to add about your vision for tackling this problem of isolation, again, both for seniors and for caregivers? Uh, thank you for asking that. This is one of my favorite subjects. Um, I think the first step is for us all to start talking more realistically and more openly and with big love, big love for each other. It's, it, these are not easy discussions and no one wants to talk about the day that they might die. And, and when you're well, uh, even, even I'm thinking about myself, like I, I don't want to talk about that. Um, and, and nobody does, not the parents who are aging, nor the adult children who are working and perhaps still raising children of their own. Uh, but I think, to back to my personal story and not having the toolkit I would have liked, if we could have, we were actually ready, more ready than most families, if, if you want to know the truth. Uh, my mom was super proactive. She was a single mom who had raised three daughters in the 70s, worked her way up to an executive position in a company. She was no shrinking violet. And she made us sit down when she was 65, 10 years before she got cancer. And she made us go through the paperwork and the wills and her wishes. And so she was very brave. We did not want to talk about it. I can tell you that. Um, I would have been, she was 65, so I would have been 45. And we didn't want to talk about it at that point. And she was perfectly well, and we didn't see any reason to talk about it, but she forced us to talk about it. And even though in my family, we had had those conversations, I was the executor because I'm the eldest daughter. Um, I knew my mom's banker. I was on her bank accounts. Um, I knew her lawyer. I knew about the will. Uh, we knew she wanted to be cremated. We knew she did not want to die in a hospital. We knew many things. Uh, we knew she wanted to, she had a DNR, do not resuscitate. We knew a lot of things, but, and, and so it was, and we had long-term health care, by the way. We had long-term health care insurance. So we actually had help in the house five days a week, and we had hospice care. I mean, hardly anybody has all of those good elements that I had. And still, it almost killed me. You know, it was so difficult. Um, the one thing that we did not do, and this is why I'm so passionate about this, we did not talk about the day when she would need full-time, 24-7 nursing in the bed, right? We didn't talk about that. Um, and I think that we underestimated how difficult that would be for, again, three daughters, three daughters, not only children, three daughters spotting each other um, and one of them there full-time. And we were all burnt out by the end of it. 
all of us. And because we hadn't talked about it at the end, uh, it became it became a, a, a contentious thing. So I had to force my mom to sign a paper that said I could get more nursing help because we had the money. We could, we could pay for the nursing help, but my mother didn't want any more strangers in the house. And this is, it's a natural thing. And I think I would feel that way as well. But if we had had the way to talk about this, even if we had to get a therapist or a counselor to help us, we, we, we could have had those discussions in a much less emotionally charged manner because we would be having those discussions without a problem, right? The problem would not have been real, but it was real by the time we had those conversations. So for me, um, I, want, I want individuals to open their eyes and accept the fact that this is, go this is going to happen. It's going to happen. And the sooner we can just talk about it like real people with each other and with love again, um, the better off we will all be in the future because we know, we know this as well about caregiving. Even if you have a good plan, you're probably gonna have to change it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. because, because we can't know exactly that all of us yeah. i know <laughs> and even if you're the best communicator on this earth the i think there are two parts of a communication right what is the other party's comprehension because even if you can communicate in as many words or as delicately or effectively if the other person is not listening or even tuning in it's not a conversation right yes i think i think just before you use, you tuned into the podcast, I was talking to Paul and he talked about, um, you know, you fall down the rabbit hole sometimes thinking. And I said, or you bury your head like an ostrich in that hole. So either which ways there is a ditch. Now, whether your head down or legs down, we don't know, you know, um, but at least I can assure you from listening to your vision uh, solutions that my, my, from my own experience, for me, it was, easier in some ways because I'm a physician so I, I logically knew so at the time when it happened I would say I didn't have impulsive reactions but of course of course you know it it, it weighs in on you and you have to take self-help and self-care for yourself uh, sometimes your uh, call your family members may not be at the same grieving level like because not everybody goes the journey in the same way so it's a lot of boundaries self-care then being kind and reaching out so it's a lot of dance in a way that you've never danced you know <laughs> even that's if a great know. that's a great way to put it namrata it really is it's yeah. it's something that we don't we don't know how to do this we don't know none of us know how to do this and it needs a lot of self-forgiveness forgiveness of others because when you draw the boundary you feel guilty that you're caring for yourself but if you don't do that you cannot have like two burnt out people yeah. But then if, you know, and then when you're in a little bit, bit of a better situation, then you reach out. So I think uh, for the past one year, this has been my situation. And um, of course, uh, so I understand this very, <laughs> very well firsthand. 
and 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 the thing is it's different right it uh, it also depends on i think when you're solving isolation what's the baseline connectivity level baseline resilience level forget a calamity and then the and how does someone bounce back in general you know because i in general would talk i preemptively take therapy if i have to i do a lot of other uh, self care practices i'm open to the idea of spirituality so it helps me a lot having faith something higher than me if people are not if they're agnostic they atheists they have different uh, mechanisms right so so for me i think there's such a bigger underlying uh, picture to personalize this journey so what do you think are the opportunities and barriers to your vision well um i think i think one of the great opportunities is this prolonged pandemic and i actually have a hope and i believe it's not an unrealistic hope that about 10 to 20% of the human beings on the planet will evolve in a in a pretty interesting positive manner because of the very pressures that we're under in this pandemic so if you're a person like you namrata who looks inside and like me and paul i know we look inside we we would go to therapy if we saw or realized a need for that we would seek we would seek yeah. ways to to become better from adversity and and so i believe that if if even 10 or 20% of the people on the planet had some kind of aha epiphany as a result of digging deeper during this pandemic we will have advanced as a society um as we come out of it um because you can't uh you can't go back after you your eyes are open right you can, you can't really go back so i i have a big hope in my in my vision that 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 is happening as we speak okay that's number 1 and that means that more people at all ages would be more open minded to have these discussions they would have been exposed to their own inner worlds as well as seeing family and friends struggle with caregiving situations during the pandemic because those are also up so we've got two things working there in our favor to move the human psyche forward if you will yeah. and i i'm not a psychiatrist or anything like this is just like debbie talk yeah. but i yeah. i do i do think uh i do think there's a pretty good chance of that and i think if we all keep pushing at it um that things i mean already already the dialogue about caregiving in our society is so much better than it was before the pandemic for for me i couldn't even get people to listen to me before the pandemic it's kind of like oh uh, you know yeah 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 you know people kind of listen to me but uh, my book came out at the end of 2018 and uh you know i had some pretty good resonance on that but in a lot of ways i was talking to people who were already bought into the conversation and now what i find is that i can go much wider with this conversation i can involve a much wider universe of people uh who are willing to listen to me and so just from my own personal anecdotal experience of what's going on i i have hope i actually have much more hope on this than i did even even 3 years ago so you know i think 
if we all as individuals keep pushing it forward and people keep evolving and then we get maybe some government on board you know if we can and you can keep that eyeball roll in <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't mind um and and we get in we we get people working more together at grassroots levels and we just keep pushing it along i think we're we've got momentum now that we did not have three yeah. years ago so i i have a lot i have a lot of hope about that yeah i think just uh before paul asks you the next question i think the digital onboarding that's one difference that has come in and um, I think the building of ecosystems, buy-in for ecosystems that has happened at all levels, no matter whatever topic you pick up, there is an ecosystem mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing, which I said to Paul something, and maybe that was the biggest shift for me too, right? Today, I have the career of my dream sitting at home. I'm doing everything I wanted to do. I don't have to go anywhere to sell anything because in my job, I had to like, you know, I have to reach out and meet people and all. So I'm sitting at home. And I can have a balanced life. Uh, so less burnt out, less tired, you know, or more able to have, meet my friends more often, meet my family more often. I think, uh, so I said to Paul, and this was a famous quote by Buddha. And I, I remember that. So it says the one who looks outside dreams and one who looks inside awakens. So I think you're looking for not the dreamers, but the awakeners this time. We've already had the dreamers and they've done their job, you know? <laughs> so that's my take on what you said. Paul? Yeah, I like that. I like the way you put that. Thank you. Um, what advice would you have for our company? You know, um, this is going to sound a little funny coming from me because I'm a market researcher, but I believe in market research. Oh, I do. And I, I think the more that you talk with your core users and your different types of users, the more you can shape your product and your offerings for them. And um, I myself follow what I preach. So I, I am constantly talking to caregivers and companies and people in the space, in the ecosystem, because that's the way I learn about the ecosystem. But it's also the way that I figure out how I'm gonna wedge a marketing concept in there. And um, I, I think we've been talking a lot about this, uh, Namrata, you heard some of the conversation yep. the other day um, with age tech products, for example. A lot of age tech products are designed by hotshot young designers who yep. they're not even experienced. Yep. They don't have the problem yet. So yep. how can they even understand or develop the solution yep. if they don't even have the problem yet? So I, I I really think that talking to the end users and the different types of core users is a, is a really, really important aspect of any kind of product or service development. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm an age tech researcher and I think the first word is co-designed. All solutions have to be co-designed. They cannot, because you may assume the other day, what was the simplest assumption we made, Paul? What was it? Flyers, right? Flyers, yeah, flyers. Yeah, Sears Junction flyers. Okay, so yeah. still works. So whoever tells you that you don't need flyers, I keep getting asked for my business cards, which I have to now get printed. Um, you know, because well, I had I had the previous one printed, like say when I just moved to Canada, they're still there. All of them are still there. So I was like, okay, well, maybe cards are dead, but they're not. Like you have to know which audience needs what and uh, where you have to use your technology, right? So I think, I hope we can stay, stick true to your advice and, you know, 
I love market research. It's it's my passion. So thank you. Thank you for you know touching on the topic which I love the most in our company. Apart from all the other things which are so amazing, but market research is like my jam. I love it so much. Oh, that's that makes me thrilled. Because <laughs> I, I, I really love it as well. Yeah, yeah, I talk to people all the time and I try to do my research in such a way. I use my podcasts as data analysis points to get better research for products and technology. So it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So um, if people want to find you, how can they find you? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn and I, I've got a, 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 a list of links that you can include in the show notes or- Yes, I will, I will, I will. So LinkedIn is a great place to read about me. You can also go to www.thecaregivingjourney.com. My new website will be www.thecaregivingcrisis.com that goes with the B2B book that comes out in January. And um, I think those, those are probably the best places to find me. I'm, I'm also, if you go to LinkedIn, you'll get the, the Twitter and the Instagram, you know, you'll get all the other yeah. things as well. And Clubhouse, you can find me on Clubhouse. Exactly, I was about to say that, yeah. That you can talk to her on Clubhouse and she has, I mean, I must compliment, like I, I attend events quite a lot and I host quite a lot, but this was by far the highest quality of networking event I've attended. So it was smashing, absolutely smashing. Oh, I'm so, I'm so delighted to hear you say that, Namrata. You. And, you. you know, we try really hard and um, Clubhouse is, a, is a, an interesting um, medium. And yes. when I first heard about Clubhouse, I was like, oh, God, you know, please, not another, first of all, not another digital yeah. social media thing, yeah. please. But um, like I'm barely, you know, getting LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff yeah. under control. Yeah. But, but I've come to really love it. And uh, it does take preparation. And yeah. then um, they, they've been doing a lot of things to make it more useful. Um, but I, I love the audio format and I love the podcast format. So um, yeah. I, I think yeah. we found that too, right? When we did the Seniors Junction Summit, our guests were less stressed because they could pop in, do their segment, pop out or listen and keep it on mute. Last two, the year, two years before when I did the Zoom Summit, it was more challenging to be in like one place and then you're there. So I think we love both formats. Uh, but, but for at least hosting high level networking, we've seen whether, especially B2B, I'm not saying B2C, but B2B, everybody's more comfortable with audio only formats. So yeah, for Clubhouse, if you're listening, you can tweet us back. This is, this is, we like you and Zoom, we love you. We run our business on Zoom. Well, uh, we so. do, we can't <laughs> so, live yeah. with that. But you know, another fun thing that's happened during the pandemic is that we've all gotten better at all yeah. of this. You know, um, I'm so much better than I was a year or so ago. And and there are still little glitches here and there, but I don't get frustrated or angry the way I used to. I, <laughs> I used to be like Rumpelstiltskin, you know, <laughs> if well, something didn't work, but we've all become more tolerant and more- oh Yeah, because we, we have like Paul's cats bombing the videos like at least five times, you know, with the tails right. coming in the space. Uh, we, I think we've got all patient and- we were initially, I guess, so private about our personal lives. I mean, now my bedroom is my workspace. So what do you do? You have to work. So I think uh, the, the, that's a very big change because I started using Zoom in 2014. So for me, I used it in places where there was low bandwidth. It was really a good medium back then. And now it's become like the main way of operating life in general. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is great meeting of the minds. What a great podcast. And by the way, everybody, happy new year to you. This was the last podcast for 2021. And we have an exciting lineup for 2022. <laughs> yes. Happy new year, everyone. Season's greetings. Yeah.